Well, good morning, Northbrook. How are we doing? Excellent. Good. Uh, if you're new to Northbrook, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at Northbrook, and uh, so excited to be with you. Week two of our Lent series. Uh, but before we get to the message, I want to say something, um, if you'll give me a minute. I was reflecting this past uh, couple weeks that recently uh, we started, our family started our 12th year here at Northbrook. And... Um, you don't know what I'm going to say next. Don't clap yet. Um, I was, no, I, you know, occasionally in my messages, I, I realize that I'll, I'll point out criticism that, that I've received over the years. But I want to be real clear that this church is such a great place because there are so many great people. And our family has been so encouraged uh, doing ministry these, these last 11 years here at Northbrook Church. Uh, we have a picture of our family when we started. So there we are. I know, I know we look the same. Uh, look at those babies and the baby. Um, and, uh, since then we've, we've added one. We look a little different. Uh, so there we are, uh, now. Um, and, uh, I, you know, our family just is, feels so thankful that, uh, we have been at this church for 11 years and, uh, our kids have grown up here. Um, our oldest was three when we moved here. She's going to be 14 this summer. Pray for us. And, um, but you know, I think about her journey and from the workers down in the children's area when she was little, uh, to now her huddle leader in our student ministry and the other women that have invested in her life from here. Um, the people that she watches and looks up to the women that sing and preach on this stage. Like I'm just so thankful, uh, for the people of this church. No church is perfect. Uh, but this church is a pretty great place, in my humble opinion, and so uh, we feel so blessed to be here. And so I just want to say thank you to all of you for making this such a wonderful church, and I want to say thanks to the leadership for taking a chance uh, on our family 11 years ago, and I'm so excited for what the future holds uh, for this place. So just wanted to say that before we dive in. All right, enough of that. Uh, if you missed last week, again, we are in our Lent series, At the Table. Uh, and this Lent series, we are exploring stories uh, where Jesus shared a meal with a group of people. There is something just that's intimate and powerful about sharing a meal with other people, whether it's in your home or whether it's at a restaurant. Uh, people bond over food, you know, people bond over food. And so there's something, uh, there's something to notice when we see Jesus eating meals with people in the Gospels. And so we're exploring those stories today. We'll be in Matthew 9, or Matthew 9, yes, Matthew 9, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Um, this story takes place in three out of the four Gospels. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke all record this story. We're going to be looking at Matthew because the story is about Matthew. And so why not read the story from someone who was definitely there, the person that the story is about. And so in Matthew 9, uh, we're going to read, but before we get there, I was trying to think of how I can help you understand the, the dynamic that is going on in this story. You know, thousands of years after the story happens, it's so easy for us in American culture to just lose sight of, of some of the, the political and cultural implications, dynamics that are going on. Uh, Matthew, as he writes this he, to other Jews, he just assumes that there's going to be some things that they're picking up on in the story that he doesn't have to say. And uh, so I thought of a, a clip from the TV series, The Chosen, that beautifully illustrates this. Now, I understand The Chosen is not a, a, literate, a literal interpretation of, the, of Scripture, and I understand they take some artistic liberties, but 
they do such a good job of helping us understand the dynamic of what is happening in this portion of the text. So check out this clip. We live in the same world, Matthew. Next. Besides, what else are you going to do with a mind like yours? Matthew. Matthew, son of Alpheus. Yes. Follow me. Me? <laughs> yes, you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh. What are you doing? You want me to join you? Keep moving, street preacher. Do you have any idea what this guy has done? Do you even know him? Yes. Listen, I said to... What are you doing? Where do you think you're going, guys? Let me go. Have you lost your mind? You have money. Quintus protects you. No Jew lives as good as you. You're going to throw it all away. Yes. I didn't get it when I chose you either. But this is different. I'm not a tax collector. Get used to difference. I'm glad we passed by your booth today, Matthew. Yes. Shall we? We have a celebration to prepare for. You will regret this, Matthew. What's the tablet for? grabbed it without thinking. You can put it back. No, no, keep it. You may yet find use for it. Where are we going? A dinner party. I'm not welcome at dinner parties. Well, that's not going to be a problem tonight. You're the host. Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told them, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. Such an interesting story. Jesus is walking along with some of his disciples, and he comes upon the booth of a tax collector named Matthew. And I'm sure immediately his disciples are like, what are we doing talking to this guy? 
And I'm sure even Matthew felt a little uh, apprehensive at why the rabbi was coming by his booth and what the rabbi might say. I'm sure Matthew was used to rabbis using him as the villain, as the punchline, as the what not to be like example. And so I'm sure even Matthew was nervous. To say that tax collectors were not liked by Jews in Jesus' day would be a colossal understatement. Tax collectors in that time collected exorbitant amounts of money for the Roman Empire, and then the Roman Empire used that money to continue to oppress the Jewish people. Tax collectors would be set up by the Roman Empire on a busy road or in a a town, and they would collect taxes on all goods passing through. In other words, if you were a fisherman, you would have a tax on the fish that you caught. If you were a farmer, you would have a tax on your produce. And it was quite the tax. In fact, it was such a high tax that there are historical accounts of entire Jewish towns, people fleeing and abandoning the town and living out in the wilderness just to avoid the taxes of Rome. You ever thought about that after you do your taxes? It's like, honey, how do you like camping permanently? But if that wasn't enough, tax collectors would often charge more than they should and pocket the extra money. There's no internet. There was, there was no, there was no way of knowing how much the tax collector was supposed to be collecting from you. The, the taxes would continually change. And so the tax collectors had free reign to charge whatever they said the Roman Empire wanted and they could pocket the extra money they collected. It got to a point where religious leaders put tax collectors in the same category as thieves and robbers. Tax collectors were viewed as unclean citizens not welcome in the temple or in Jewish society. Which makes Jesus move that day all that more fascinating. Jesus walks by Matthew's tax collecting booth and I'm sure Matthew is well aware of who Jesus is. He's, I'm sure he's heard about the miracles. He might have even seen some of the miracles firsthand. But Matthew knows he'll never be accepted by Jesus. And then Jesus says two words that change everything for Matthew. Jesus says, follow me. And to be clear, Jesus is not asking Matthew if he wants to play hooky from work the rest of the day and hang out. No, that, that phrase has a lot of meaning. See, every rabbi had students that would follow them around and listen to their teaching. And when a rabbi saw a student that had so much promise, uh, so much wisdom, so much dedication, that they thought that that student had the potential to eventually become a rabbi of their own, the rabbi would say to them two words. Follow me. Follow me was an official invitation to someone to become a disciple of the rabbi because the rabbi believed that eventually that student could become a rabbi of their own. And so when Jesus says, follow me to Matthew, what he's offering him is an incredible opportunity to become a student of Jesus with the potential of someday being a rabbi like Jesus. But it comes with great cost. Matthew would have to leave everything. He would have to leave his comfortable job, all the money, the protection of the Roman Empire. If there was any disciple that had a lot to lose, Matthew probably had the most to lose of any disciple that followed Jesus. Whereas Peter, Andrew, James, and John, if the whole discipling thing didn't work out, they could go back to fishing. Once Matthew left his tax collecting job, the Roman Empire would find someone else to collect taxes and there would be no going back. 
It's interesting, in fact, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew's writing about himself, and I, don't, I think he probably doesn't want to brag on himself, right, because that's a little awkward. So he just says that, you know, he goes with Jesus. But Luke, in Luke's account of this story, Luke adds a couple words. Luke says, Matthew got up and left everything to follow Jesus. And it's not an exaggeration on Luke's part. Matthew had to make the choice to leave his comfortable job, the money, the protection of the Roman Empire, to follow Jesus, knowing that he would still be despised by all the Jewish people. It's not like once he stopped tax collecting, suddenly everyone would be like, oh, you're fine, we like you now. No, he would still be despised. He was venturing into the unknown. And Matthew throws a dinner party. And his friends show up, and who are the friends of tax collectors? Other tax collectors. And the writers say sinners. Now, of course, that's a broad category. But most likely in this context, uh, it would be other unclean people, people that were unclean by their profession. Uh, for example, at Christmas time, we talked about how shepherds were considered unclean because they worked with sheep, so perhaps there were a few shepherds there. Uh, but from the text, we also can assume that there were some people there uh, that had uh, some rough backgrounds, perhaps thieves, robbers, prostitutes. So it's quite the dinner party. You have a rabbi and his disciples, and then you have tax collectors and sinners. And I'm sure Jesus' disciples were at least a little uncomfortable. They were good Jewish boys. They'd been taught by their mamas, you never have a meal with tax collectors or sinners. And here they are, and to make matters worse, you couldn't hide a dinner party in those days. Right? You have a dinner party at your house, you might be able to hide who you invite from prying neighbors. But there, most dinner parties were out in the open, outside the house, in the yard. Passersby could easily see who was invited. Or if you had a dinner party in your home, those homes had huge windows to let in a Mediterranean breeze on those hot nights. And so anyone walking by could easily see exactly who was invited. So, of course, word spreads pretty quickly that a rabbi is having dinner with tax collectors and sinners. And eventually word gets to the Pharisees. And, of course, the Pharisees are immediately agitated and irritated because they have taught the Jewish people that if you eat with an unclean person, you yourself become unclean. Furthermore, anyone that you eat with, you signify you approve their lifestyle. So Pharisees would never dream of eating with tax collectors and sinners. So eventually, at some point, they questioned Jesus' disciples, why in the world were you eating with tax collectors and sinners? And it's interesting that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in all three accounts, the disciples have nothing to say. It's almost like the disciples are like, we have no idea why we were eating with tax collectors and sinners. They're silent. And Jesus overhears it, and it's like Jesus has to step in at this point. And Jesus says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus says, I'm not here to hang out with the people that have it all together. I'm not here to hang out with the righteous, the saints, the cleaned up. I'm here to enter the mess I'm a doctor for the soul, and I'm here to help people who are broken and hurting and need mercy. Such an interesting story. In our time left, I want to give you two observations that I have of this story. 
And my prayer is that God will speak to all of us and nudge us in the direction that we need to go to grow in response to this story. Because here's the thing, you can hear a great story like this, and if you don't do anything with it, it's just a nice story in a nice book. So two observations for you this morning. The first one is Jesus entered the mess. About six months into dating Shalana, the woman that's now my wife, uh, we went on a road trip to visit her sister in New Richmond, and uh, we took with us uh, Shalana's uh, niece, who was like seven or eight years old at the time. And uh, so we did this road trip, and we're eating snacks and blasting music and having a great time. And we get to New Richmond, and we, we literally have like five minutes before we get to her sister's house. And from the back seat, uh, my wife's niece, or my girlfriend's niece at the time, says, I don't feel so good. Now, to the parents in the room, that means something. To a young 20-something-year-old guy with no kids, I was like, ah, you'll be fine. Like, we'll fight. we got five minutes. Well, about 60 seconds later, <clears throat> I heard a noise from the back seat. And let's just, let's just say the snacks were back. And I gotta, I gotta be honest. I don't, I have, a, I have a very sensitive gag reflex. And that, and let's just be real clear. We were dating. That was not family yet. So I immediately jumped into how do I appear helpful without being helpful in this moment? I'm just being honest. So we pull into a gas station and we have some like napkins and some stuff. And so, uh, so Shalana's like, all right, I'll try to clean this up. And I'm, again, I'm trying to, you know, just, you know, figure out how to, and I'm, oh, wait, wait, wait. I'm like, I'll go into the gas station and I'll find paper towels. That'll be my contribution. So I go into the gas station and, um, you, you know, mall walkers, you know, those people that go to the mall, they don't actually buy anything. They just walk the mall. Well, I was a gas station walker. I'm just walking the gas station aisles, and the attendant's like, hey, can I help you find anything? I'm like, not yet. Not yet. Shalana doesn't let me forget that story. I will say I I do much better with our own kids. Much better. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Helping sick people is not a lot of fun. It's much, much more fun to hang out with healthy people. And yet Jesus came to help sick people. And he modeled for his disciples to help sick people. And as followers of Jesus, we are invited to enter into the mess with broken, hurting, sick people. Jesus was a doctor for the soul, and he invited his disciples, and he invites you and I, as we go through life, to be doctors of the soul. Can you imagine if you, if you were in an accident, and you were hurt pretty bad, or your kid was hurt pretty bad, and you show up at the ER needing medical attention, can you imagine if you showed up, and the, uh, the lady at the front desk said, oh, you know what, the doctor today, he, he only wants to work with healthy people. So Sorry. That would be crazy, right? That would never happen. But how often do we as followers of Jesus wake up and go, you know what, God, I don't feel like, I don't feel like dealing with messy, broken, sick people today. I think I'll hang out with the saints. I think I'll hang out with the righteous. I think I'll hang out with the people that have their lives together today. And yet as followers of Jesus, we are invited by God not to just hang out with people that have their lives together, that... 
We are invited to occasionally enter the mess of broken, hurting people in our world. But if we're honest, that's difficult. Like, we want to love people, right? We're like, oh yeah, as followers of Jesus, we want to love people. But if we're honest, we want to be the ones that show up outside the ER in like the reception area with like the balloons and the card and the flowers. We want to love people after they've been cleaned up. After they've been fixed. We don't want to actually go in the ER and scrub in and, and get involved in the messiness that is brokenness. Jesus entered the mess. And he loved a group of people considered unclean, despised. And he eats with tax collectors. And I think this is really important to note. Matthew had given up on his tax collecting. He'd left his tax collecting job. But there were other tax collectors at that dinner that were still tax collecting. And remember, in Jesus' day, the belief was that whoever you eat with, you are affirming their lifestyle. You feel the tension there? Interesting, thousands of years later, we're still kind of wrestling with that same tension. Like, people I don't agree with, like, how do I show them love? What can I do? What can I not do? It's interesting to me as I think about this story, because if Jesus, if, if, if it were 2023 and Jesus did that exact same thing, here's what I think people would say about him. You ready for this? This is what I think people would say about Jesus, or say to Jesus. Jesus, by eating with those tax collectors, you are telling the world that you are accepting their lifestyle and affirming the oppressive tax of the Roman Empire. And since the Roman Empire uses that money to fund their soldiers who go out and torture, kill, and maim innocent women and children, in essence, by sitting with tax collectors, Jesus, you are killing innocent women and children. Furthermore, by sitting with tax collectors, you are affirming their lifestyle and making their lifestyle look desirable to young, impressionable minds. And now our Jewish children will want to grow up and be tax collectors. And you, Jesus, by eating dinner with tax collectors, could very well bring down all of Jewish society for decades to come. You've compromised just to get people to like you. You feel the tension there? It's difficult. But here's something that's important to understand as followers of Jesus, if we're going to follow Jesus into the mess of a broken world. Apparently, Jesus believed you can enter into someone's world, you can eat meals with them, you can build a relationship with them, you can genuinely care for them, you can love them deeply, and that doesn't mean you are condoning everything about them. You can accept someone and accept that they are made in the image of God and loved by God and worthy of God's love and you can be the hands and feet of God to make the reality of God's love known to them while still upholding your values. Apparently you can go to a party and eat a meal with the very ones blamed for all of society's issues and still be holy and righteous. Because that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus said, I require mercy, not sacrifice. The definition of mercy is to show compassion or forgiveness towards someone when it is in your power to punish or harm them. So what would it look like to enter the mess this month? What would it look like, instead of being a well-wisher with balloons and a card, the reception area of the ER, what would it look like to get in the ER and scrub in? To find opportunities to meet people in the mess 
to be God's hands and feet to the hurting, the broken, to be a doctor for the soul this month. That's number one. Second observation for you. To sit at the table, you may need to give something up. I love the arc of Matthew's life. Matthew was a despised tax collector, hated by the Jewish people, and then he becomes a disciple of Jesus, and eventually he goes on to write the Gospel of Matthew, which would be the primary text for his Jewish audience. It's the first Gospel in the New Testament. Kind of ironic, actually. What a legacy. But that legacy came with a cost. Matthew had to leave his comfortable life, his good job, the protection of the Roman Empire, and venture into the unknown. And when he said goodbye to his job, he had no idea how it was going to play out. He didn't know he would go on to write the Gospel of Matthew. He didn't know that he would be a close friend of God in the flesh. He didn't know that he would be a founding father of the early church. He didn't know any of that. Before he could discover any of that, he had to let go of what he had. And that's difficult. Because I think human nature is to say, Jesus, can I keep my tax collector job and just follow you on the weekends? Like, we as human beings, like, we want, we want to follow God, we want everything God has for us, but we want all our stuff too. We want all our dreams too. We want it all. But more often than not, before we can, before we can discover God's best for us, we gotta be willing to let go of what we already have. The call to follow Jesus always comes with cost. The abundant life, the rich, fulfilling, meaningful, peaceful, joyful life that God says is available to us, that we desperately want but have trouble finding, it may be that the reason we can't find it is because we're not willing to let go of what we have. This Lent season, what would it look like to let go of some things to take hold of the abundant life? This month we've created some resources, for example, to guide you in Lent. Uh, we talked about them last week. They're on our website. Uh, some spiritual disciplines like fasting, prayer, almsgiving, and they're available. And maybe, maybe when you heard that last week or when you're hearing that right now, your first thought is, I don't got time for that. And you know what? You're right. Your current schedule, your current pace of life, your current hobbies, your current responsibilities, you don't. Not to do it well. If you really want to dive into spiritual disciplines, if you really want to discover the peace and the joy and the closeness that comes with walking with God this Lent season, it's going to require first letting go of some things. Some things that you've accumulated on your journey. Maybe some things that you thought were going to bring you happiness and, and maybe some things you thought you needed. And, and right now, if you reflect, you're like, actually, no, they're not really all that fulfilling, but you're holding on to them so tightly. You're like, I don't think I can let them go. And letting go is going to be necessary for receiving what God has for you this Lent season. Maybe for others of you, when you heard about entering into the mess, right? Entering in the mess, you were like, oh my gosh, I do not have time for that. I don't got time to love my own family, let alone love some hurting, broken person, join some ministry that's doing good work. And you know what? You're right. Your current schedule, your current responsibilities, you don't have time to enter into the mess. 
and to really be a part of what God is doing in the world and to really be a doctor for the soul, it's going to require you to let go of some things that you desperately think you need, but in reality, you don't. And in return, step into the unknown, the scary unknown, and discover what God has for you on the other side. It takes a lot of courage to let go of something when you're not exactly sure what you're grabbing onto on the other side. But that, my friends, is faith. So what would it look like this Lent season to enter into the mess and let go of some things in order to make room for some better things that God has for us? Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the story of Matthew. I thank you that you sought out Matthew in his brokenness, in the mess. I thank you that once upon a time you sought out me in my brokenness, in my mess, and, and every person in this room that you pursued, not, not, not on their best day, but on their worst day. Father, I pray that you would give us the courage to enter into the mess this Lent season, to let go of things that we think we need to encounter what you have for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.